Good morning. You could open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This morning we're going to continue our series through what we believe, and it's through the Second Baptist London um, Confession. Last week we spoke on the, um, the Holy Scriptures, and today's topic will be on the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? 
Jesus answered them, I baptize, I mean, I'm sorry, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray one more time. Dear Lord, as singers and as preachers, we are but voices crying out in the wilderness, pointing to the Lord. We truly cannot untie the strap of your sandals. We are so unworthy. So Lord God, we ask that you would come and meet us and reveal to us your truth. Teach us your word, O God. It's not by might, but by your spirit that we will be built up. Build us up, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day and told him that I was preparing a sermon on the the Holy Trinity. And he said, aren't you all trying to get people into your church? You're going to lose people before you even get them. I thought to myself, actually, no, we're not trying to get people into our church. We're trying to get people to God. And we want to teach God so he can be worshipped for what he has done and who he is. So through the lens of Scripture, we see God is the Holy Trinity. Now, when I say Holy Trinity or triune God, I'm saying God is three persons in one God, three persons in one God. Now, to teach on the Trinity, I'll anchor us in John 1, but since the Trinity is one of those doctrines in which you have to see it from the whole Bible, I'll probably flip to a couple other places, but we'll try to camp here. So through the Holy Scriptures, I would like us to see four things. Our God is triune. Our triune God creates. Our triune God provides a savior. And our triune God saves. Our triune God creates. Our triune God provides a savior. 
Now triune God saves. So right at the start, it says in the first verse, in the beginning was the word. And then when we look down to verse 14, it says the word became flesh. That means became human. And then look at verse 29. We see his human name. It is Jesus. And then after John talks about the baptism account, he says in verse 34, Jesus is the son of God. So when we see the title word here in the beginning, we know that it is speaking about Jesus, the son of God. And it says in verse one, in the beginning was the word, was Jesus. This shows us that Jesus was not created, but always existed. He was before time. He was even before space. Now, in some of your Bibles, if you have a New King, a New King James Version or King James Version, John 1.18 says that, I'll read it, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Now, this word begotten does not mean created, okay? It means he is um, of its only kind. He is only unique. In the um, Wycliffe Bible Dictionary, it says this. Um, the Greek word monogenes, which is only begotten, means single of its kind, only, unique. The root of the Greek word, careful experts now see, it is not to beget or to generate, but it means only of its kind. So that's why we're saying, um, no, Jesus was not created, but Jesus was in the beginning. He is God. Now, when we celebrate Christmas, we're not celebrating Jesus being created. We're celebrating John of, of verse 14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And John even bears witness to his eternal nature when he says in verse 15, John bore witness about him, that's speaking of Jesus, and cried out, this was of he whom I said, he comes, who comes after me ranks before me. Why does he rank before him? Because he was before me. Jesus is eternal. But we also see another person here. In, back in verse 1, it says, the word was with God. Of course, we know God was there, right? And Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the same thing I said about the Son of God replied, applies to God as well. He was in the beginning. He always existed. He was not created. But this, now this next phrase in the first verse is what throws the world for a loop. It says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, the word was God. Now, what we see here is that it says that the son of God is God. And we already know that God, the father is God. So are we saying that God, the father is God, the son? No, they are 
distinct persons, and they have different roles, and they have different responsibilities, which we will see later. But we can say that God the Father and God the Son are one. And they are one because they are both God. Right here, I read this verse again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what separates us from uh, oneness Pentecostals, Jehovah Witnesses, um, uh, Unitarians, because Christians believe that Jesus was God in the person in the beginning, and he always existed. The Son of God always existed. And so this is why we would say that those religions who do, that does not have Jesus as God is worshiping a false God. Which is why what my brother uh, Wyeth did when he sat down and was patient and talked to them to explain the scriptures is what we should do or endeavor to be able to do. Because to worship a false God is worthy of condemnation and is worthy of hell. So, brothers and sisters, let's be patient, let's be gracious, and let's take the time and try and teach those who don't have a, a grasp on this truth that Jesus is God. And if you don't feel equipped yet, then get equipped, because <laughs> we want to be able to help those learn. Now, to make things a little more incomprehensible, um, but all the more glorious, Genesis 1-2 says that someone else was in the beginning. Genesis 1-2 says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see the Spirit of God is also in the beginning, not being created by anyone, instead sharing in the same quality of God of being eternal. And once again, the Holy Spirit is God. One of the many verses that proves this is Matthew 12, 31. Just listen as I read. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Blaspheming the Spirit gets the same result as blaspheming God because the Spirit is God. So to sum it up, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God. And they are not three separate gods, they are one God. Jesus says in Matthew and Mark 12, 29, when they asked him what was the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when I say God, I'm talking about the one who is eternal. Psalms 92 says, before the, foundation, before the mountains were brought forth, ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The one who is unchanging, Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. The one who is all-powerful, Jeremiah 32.27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? 
the one who is uncontainable. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? The one who contains everything, Psalms 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, the one who is immortal, the one who is invisible. The God is the God who is the one that has no equal. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. When I went on other websites that kind of rejected the Trinity, the consistent words that I kept reading were inconceivable, illogical, irrational. And I kept thinking, that's, that's so prideful, arrogant. That's too smart for one's own good. If we are going to believe in the one triune God, we are going to have to be people who submit to God's word. And believing that God is triune is not the hardest thing to believe. We, we're going to have to believe that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Common sense says you stay from anything away, you stay away from anything that makes you sad. You're going to have to believe blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know who the most, one of the most influential people are, according to Time magazine? Kanye West. That's not hardly meek. <laughs> not hardly. Listen, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But that's okay, because we are not of this world and are headed to a better world with a far more glorious God than we can imagine or think. The doctrine of the Trinity should not make us run away from God. It should make us run to God and to take our intellectual crowns, our PhDs or GEDs or whatever other Ds you got, and to throw it on the ground before him and to bow and worship. So if the Holy Scriptures reveal that each person of the Trinity is God, that God the Father is God, that God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. We must believe it, and we must love to believe it. But creation itself also testifies to the glorious triune God, which leads to my next point. Our triune God creates. Our one triune God creates. Verse 3 um, reads, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we all know that God the Father is creator of everything. But here we see that he did it through Jesus. And Jesus was so instrumental that it says nothing would have been made without him. If you take Jesus out of the equation for creation, you have no creation. Jesus creates. That's why it's no coincidence. When, he's, um, when you see him in the New Testament and he tells the waves to stop, they stop. And then he defies buoyancy and then walks on water. Why? I think that's buoyancy. Why? Why does he do that? Because he made the water. And why is he Lord over the Sabbath? Because he made the Sabbath day. He's creator. And what about the Spirit? 
Remember in Genesis, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters because the spirit also had a part in creation. Joel 33, 36 says the spirit gave him life. The breath of the almighty made him alive. Psalms 104, 30 says that when God sends forth his spirits, things are created. So again, without God the Father, without God the Son, without God the Spirit, there would be no creation. They all have power to create because they all are God. And notice the extent of what was created. The triune God created all things, all things, time, space. He created space. There was no space before God. Wrap your head around that. You can't. You can't. No life. There was nothing. And then think of the depths of his wisdom and, and the creativity and the intelligence it takes to create the world. And then add upon that their persons of, of they're, they're all loving, they're all kind, they're all uh, they're peaceful. All of this was flowing in between the Trinity, a perfect love, a perfect fellowship, a perfect unity, perfect righteousness. And then this baffles. Now turn to Genesis chapter one. Keep your finger there. Turn to Genesis chapter one twenty six. Genesis one twenty six. I don't know if any kids ever um, been to. A, a, a party or something, or you've been sitting in the cafeteria, you're looking outside, and, and you see a, a whole bunch of people, kids on the other side, and they're having so much fun. They're, they're laughing and they're high-fiving, and you're like, oh, man, I wish, wish I could be a part of that. I wish I can get an invitation in there, and you just over here separate. Or somebody else, if, if you're an adult and you've been invited to a party from a, to, from a friend of a friend of a friend, and you're sitting at the dinner table and they're having conversation, and you're looking around like, I don't know what's going on. I'm here, but I'm not here. And, and, and they're not bringing you into the conversation. It's not like God. Look, look at what happens in Genesis 1.26. He says, he says, Genesis 1.26. I just turned there because I, I lost my spot. Genesis 1.26. He says, let us, let us, us, plural, demonstrating the, tr the trinity, the triuneness of God, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So now look, so then God, a triune God, now allows people to join the party. He creates people. He creates mankind. He created Adam and Eve to enjoy the fellowship that was going on between the Trinity. So now they can be recipients of all of this grace and recipients of all this love and recipients of all this joy and happiness that's flowing in between the, the triune God. He brings them in. Whenever I think of creation, I share the same thoughts as the psalmist when he writes, who is man that you are mindful of him? God didn't have to create mankind. He was self-sufficient and could have ran this whole world by himself. God didn't need people to love him. He had, they had love flowing through one another. 
He created mankind sheer for his glory. It didn't add to his glory. His glory is infinite. But for his glory, he, just, he, did, he brought him into existence for his glory as, as an expression of the depths of his love and generosity and kindness. He created our first parents, Adam and Eve, and gave them commands to be fruitful and to multiply so that their offspring could drink deeply from the fountain of life. Turn back to John 1.4 to drink deeply from the fountain of life. And this is life. When was the last time you were generous with somebody? Not to gain notoriety, but just to bring glory to God. Children, when was the last time you made up your bed or took out the trash or gave your parents a hug? Not to give anything, not to get anything, not to get an allowance, but just to bring life. Just, just to be nice, just to be generous. This is reflecting God. We should be wanting to be generous with all that we have. And I pray that God would help us as a church to be generous with all of our resources so that we can image God in this way. We are living where sometimes people are unwilling to create relationships because they don't want the responsibility that it brings. That should not be like us. We should not be like the world. John 1.4 says that in him was life, and life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. If you have boiled life down to a job or a degree or marriage or retirement or singleness, or winning the soccer game, or a football game, or the NBA championship, or playing your Wii. That's not life. That's living. Life is being in fellowship with the one triune God. I praise God that many people in here have been given that life and have found that life. I know people here who have taken huge pay cuts because they have found life in fellowship with the triune God. While so many people are in the world and rather go to, to, to the movies or to the club or to sleep, many of you are taking time out on Fridays to gather together around God because you all have experienced life in fellowship with the triune God. This is why I love to see parents bring their children to church because when you do so, you're showing them where life and joy is. When we sing Keith Getty over Beyonce, we're showing where life is. When we obey God's word in regards to relationships rather than Oprah, we show where life is. When we walk in the spirit at work when stuff seems chaotic, we show where life is. And this is not some abstract theological um, sense of, oh, this is life. No, it's, it's really life. It's happiness in the hard times and joy in the, in the, in the worst of times. It's, it's hope when you can't see your way through. It's singing nobody greater when everything is, is sweet and it's singing it is well with my soul when everything seems down. This is a life this is really life. Can't really say it no better than that. And, 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 and if, if, you, if what you call life, if what you call life 
can't get you past the grave and can't get you past judgment seat, it's not life. If it, if it, you, may, you may can get through some hard times. You may can break addictions. You may can break whatever. But will it get you past the grave? You need an eternal life from an eternal God. And that's only by being in fellowship with him. However, we all know that, unfortunately, people reject this life. And we see that in these next couple of verses. Something in verses 5 through 9, something has drastically changed from the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, when God walked with Adam and Eve, they knew exactly who he was. But now in verse 10, it says, he, speaking of Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And not only did they not know him, but verse 11 says that, excuse me, they did not receive him. They willfully rejected him. You see in these later verses, when um, verses 19 through uh, uh, 23, when they're like, "Uh, who are you? Where's the Christ? We're trying to find who you are, and uh, we're trying to find life or whatever. They're not really seeking. And we know this a little bit by verse 24. It says, now they have been sent from the Pharisees. And you know, if, if, as you work your way through the Gospels, the Pharisees are rejectors of the life. They rejected Jesus. They're not searching for life. And neither are we. Neither were we. So how did their, their hearts become so dark that the light that burst through the darkness at creation was not penetrating them? That the one who gave them life could come to them and they not even recognize him. The one who spoke them into existence, they don't even hear his voice anymore. How does that happen? Well, in summary, and you can go back and read it, you should. Genesis chapter um, 1, 2, 3. Uh, in summary, Adam had two choices while in perfect fellowship with the Trinity. To choose life and to obey the voice of God or to choose death and obey the voice of Satan. And he chose Satan. And therefore, God brought physical and spiritual death upon Adam and all his offspring, the world. This is why they're blind to the glory of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, Satan has blinded, what 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this world, and the God of this world, we know, is Satan has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why the world can't see Jesus. That's how we were. That's how some of us may be now. This is why our triune God provides a savior. Point three. I'll try you and God provides a savior. Look over to verse 29. 
Look at the baptismal account in the beginning, verse 29. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Notice it says that Jesus is the lamb of God. God the Father is the one who sent Jesus into the world. He, Jesus, is God's chosen servant to bring, to bring man back to him. But he didn't just send Jesus into the world. He also marked out his path while in the world. Jesus said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. So God the Father provides the world a Savior. But we also see God the Spirit in this section. Look at verse 32. It says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, this isn't the point in which Jesus received the Spirit. Jesus always had the Spirit, and he had it in full. Rather, this was a sign to John that Jesus was the one who would be filled completely with the Spirit so that he would be the one who would be the Savior. If you read uh, the book of Luke, um, Luke makes a very... um, Purpose, intentional to say that Jesus was filled with the Spirit as he was going about doing his work. So we see God the Holy Spirit was key in providing a Savior. And then we obviously see that the Son of God willfully came to the earth to dwell among men to be a Savior. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son providing a Savior. And again, if you take any of the persons out of the Trinity, which you can't, there would be no savior. You see, every person has sinned and therefore deserves death. But while Jesus lived on earth, he never sinned. He was full of grace and truth. He only did what God the Father told him to do. And he only operated in the power of God the Spirit. And in doing so, he was perfect, pure, righteous. He was everything that man needed to be. Given that he had lived a perfect life in every way, he didn't deserve to die. And yet, as a perfect lamb, he allowed himself to be slaughtered by God. Why? Because love doesn't override justice. Since God told Adam that man would surely die, then a man had to surely die. And since God God said man's perfect obedience would give them eternal life, then a man would have to perfectly obey for the world to be saved. But no man can do that. So that's why God himself came to the world and put on flesh, fully God and fully man, and lived a perfect life for man, and then died a sinful death for man, so that the world could be saved. By his life, he gives men the righteousness they need to stand before God. And through his death, he takes away man's sins. God poured out his wrath on the Son so that all who would receive him would have true life. And we know that God accepted this sacrifice when Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. When Jesus rose from the dead. This is why it says that Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. It's nothing that we can earn. It's all a free gift. It's all grace. Look at verse 17. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we try to live by God's law, we will, we will remain dead in our sins because we break his law continuously. That's why we remain under the curse of death. But God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now we can live by grace. If we want this grace, if we want this grace, we have to confess ourselves, confess as sinners, turn from our sin and place our faith in God, place our faith in Jesus Christ. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And look, Jesus is full of grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in Jesus Christ, and he doesn't run out. If you're looking for this grace, it's not too late. He's told you where it's at. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek. He told you where life is. He told you where he is. Go to him. It's where life is. Place your faith in him. Believe in him. If you are an unbeliever, would you receive this grace today? Our triune God provides a savior. Now, this leads to our last point, but we all know that by our natural selves, we can't receive the Savior. So God didn't just provide a Savior, but he also saves. He also saves. Look at verse 12, 13. But all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Anybody who receives God has to be born of God. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father, has to make and fashion and form his children. He has to give them eyes to see, but this, and this world is too blind and too sinful to receive him, which is why they have to be born of God. And how does he do it? He does it through God the Spirit. In John chapter 3, someone came to Jesus and they asked him, how can anyone enter the kingdom of God? And God said, you must be born again. And the person thinking physically, how can I be born again? I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. And then Jesus said, you must be born again by the Spirit. The Spirit is what gives us life. The Spirit is what regenerates us. The Spirit is what makes us alive. The Spirit removes the blinders so that we can see Jesus for all of his glory and so that we can receive him and embrace him for who he is and embrace him as Savior. But God the Spirit doesn't just come on his own. God the Father determines that the Spirit will come and that it will come through God the Son. God the Son sends it. In verse 33, verse 33. 
This is John the Baptist's testimony. Who on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. If anyone has come to Jesus and believes in his name, it is because God the Father gives the whole, God the Son, I mean, I'm sorry, God the Father gives birth when God the Son sends God the Spirit into their hearts. The triune God, he saves. The triune God saves. This is why a self-righteous Christian should be an oxymoron. We did nothing to make ourselves see God. Nothing. And therefore, we always need to be humble. It was all the work of the triune God. Our boast should only be in the Lord. This is why we never water down the gospel or strip it of any of its meaning. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God until salvation for everyone who believes. If anybody is going to be saved, it's going to be done by God through the gospel. This is why we never give up on a person who seems to have turned their back on God and has decided to live a somewhat destructive life. Listen, God God gives eyes to see in his timing. Don't stop praying for that loved one. Don't stop calling your wayward child. Don't stop sharing the gospel with your neighbors because God can save, and he does save. And this is also why. The fact that we are born of God is also why believing that you're saved does not make you saved. This is why believing that you've spoken in tongues does not make you saved. You have to be born of God. Have you been born of God? Have you seen Jesus for his glory? Have you received him as Lord? Do you love fellowshipping with him? Do you love his word? Do you seek to walk in the spirit? Is complaining and gossip food for your soul or is it food that you want to throw up? If, you, if, if that tastes good to you, if fighting tastes good to you, if arguing is good to you, you might not be born again. We are born from God, so therefore we would walk like our Father. We would strive to be holy as He is holy. We would strive to be around His Word. Have you been born again? If not, receive Jesus as Lord. Trust in him. Turn your eyes to him and believe. It is a beautiful thing to be a child of God. Christians, if you are a child of God, he did not have you by accident. He planned to have you 
and he planned to have you right when he did. You weren't born too late. You weren't born too early. You were right on time. And since you are his child, please believe that he is going to keep you as his child. There's no orphans in the, child, in the kingdom of God. And you know, when I say at the beginning, going through God's attributes, that he's eternal, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-never-changing, uncontainable, it was part, part to show you that, that God is his glory in and of his own. But it's also to show you the surety of your salvation. All of the attributes of God, all of the attributes of God is there to keep you. And they will keep you. I've been thinking recently how I might need to start working out so I can be able to carry my child but not so with God. He is all powerful and he will carry you. He will carry us. Listen to this verse. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your growing years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. God has carried us, and he will carry us through. And just as loud as we sing, come, Lord, come, he's singing even louder, I'm coming, my child, I'm coming. He wants to be with us. Get that he wants to be with us more than you want to be with him. He prepared a place for you and said, I'm coming to get you so you can be with me. And there's a bunch of mansions up there waiting for us, a bunch of them. They're not boarded up. They was purchased by his blood, purchased. No blood is going to be wasted. They're there for you. He's going to make sure you get it. He's going to make sure you dwell in it. And he's going to be right there with you in that heavenly home. And you know what? I know sometimes we get weak in spirit. But I try you, God. He will keep us. When you get weak, God the Spirit will be in your hearts, interceding for you, crying out to the Father on your behalf. And when your sin begins to pile up, God the Son will be in the heaven, interceding for you with his blood, saying, no, 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 I, I washed that with my blood. And there's no guilt for him or her. And then when the affairs of this life seem, that, seem like it's not going your way, you got to know God the Father is, is orchestrating all good, all, of, all, of, all things for your good. The death of a loved one for your good. Loss of a job for your good. Getting a job for your good. Singleness for your good. Marriage for your good. Everything for your good, to make certain that you be with him. Our triune God does that. Our triune God keeps, our triune God saves, and our triune God keeps us saved. And this is why 
This is why Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because if anybody is going to be saved, it's because of the triune God. This is why our benediction is, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Because if anybody is going to be kept, it's because of the one God, the one triune God. And this is why when God ushers us into the kingdom and all the people who have been saved and kept by God, will circle around God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in the center, and they will give glory and honor and praise that is due their name. Some people say that we, we will understand the Trinity more when we get to heaven. Personally, I don't need to. The Holy Trinity has done more than enough to deserve my praise today. And that's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. All equal. All co-eternal. All co-existent. And each having their role in bringing about creation, bringing a savior, and bringing salvation. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to glory and to revel and to marvel and to worship you as a triune God, as who you are. And we ask that if there's anyone in here who does not believe in your name, that they will confess and believe that you are the Savior. Do this by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.